0: Alright friends, good evening and welcome to Theology on Tap. My name is Mike. Uh, usually I am just what I'm just the host, I'm not the presenter, but tonight you're stuck with me because I am a politics nerd. Uh, I am one of the priests at the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion on Del Mar and about a block east of Hanley in University City. Theology on Tap is an uh, operation of Holy Communion Episcopal Church and Trinity Episcopal Church, and whoever else wants to come and hang out with us. Um, usually, about half the room's half the Episcopalian and half the room's not, and that's just exactly who we want to be here. Um, we get together once a month to talk about different topics, uh, and as we say, wherever you are on the journey of faith, you are welcome in this space. Uh, next month, we're really excited. Um, those of us who are Episcopalians uh, have recently elected and rec- and very soon will have a new bishop. And our speaker next month on April 1st will be bishop-elect Dion Johnson. Um, So that'll be really fun. Uh, The topic will be announced. If you haven't, if you didn't receive an email this month, that was my fault. I got it all composed and then in all the frenzy of last week with Ash Wednesday, forgot to hit send, I realized tonight. So if you do want to receive our emails, I promise I will be better this month. As soon as I have the topic from Dion, I will announce it on our social medias, but I'll also send it out through our MailChimp list. That list is right over there on the green clipboard by the exit door on the table. Um, Also on that table you will find stickers that say I'm an Episcopalian and I voted Uh, So if you want to have one for next week In case your polling place runs out of I voted stickers Or in case you want to display your Episcopalian pride It also has the hashtag vote faithfully Uh, The Episcopal Church writ large is trying to get people to post about voting So that's your hashtag Stickers are free When I thought about what our topic was going to be for Theology on Tap the week before the primary in Missouri, I thought, well, maybe we ought to take a look at the primary season. Um, And in all honesty, I had the ideal presenter uh, in mind, and he was not available uh, to come all the way from Washington, D.C. You will hear from him at the end. Um, But those of you who know me know that I moved here from Washington, D.C., and that I am a big national politics nerd. Uh, But I have an even bigger national politics nerd friend in Jack Jenkins, who is a reporter for the Religion News Service. And Jack and I have been talking for a number of years about something that he talks to everybody about. It's what his whole job is, and he's got a new book coming out. But about the idea of a religious left uh, that there is more than just a religious right in this country. And so tonight, uh, tonight is an interesting night to be talking about this for multiple reasons. Uh, in some ways, I got worried really over the last four days how many people would show up uh, to talk about a primary that from a lot of people's estimation got a lot less interesting uh, over the last few days. And we're gonna say a few words about that, but I also wanna take a look at what has happened so far in this season toward the 2020 election because there's a lot that has changed in my mind compared to campaigns in the past. So tonight what I wanna do, and usually a lot of you know I'm not a big PowerPointy type person, uh, but I've got a number of clips of various candidates talking about faith. And I want to play those for you. And if you want to go back, I will put this whole thing up with all of the clips embedded at our website at pubtheologystl.org. Um, you can get to that from the Holy Communion page on Theology on Tap as well or from the Facebook page if you want to find it. But I'll, I'll embed this whole thing on that page um, so you can go back and take a look at things. I'm not going to show all of some clips because... We don't want to be here all night. Um, But first I thought I'd get into a little bit of what is often taken for granted in in our national political politics. Like in our national frame around politics, really for the last, I'd say, 40 years at least, it has been taken for granted that the Republican Party is the religious party and that the Republican Party is where conversations about religion and politics and what it means to vote as a religious person, where that happens. And in some ways that narrative was uninterrupted all the way until I would say Donald Trump won the 2016 Republican primary. And I love this little video from the Washington Post um, because it just gives you a sampling of Donald Trump and religion. So I'm going to play all two and a half minutes of this. I believe in
1: God. I am
2: Christian. I'm a Protestant. I'm very proud of it. Presbyterian to be exact. I'm Presbyterian. Boy, that's down in the middle of the road, folks. all fairness. I mean,
3: Seventh-day Adventist, I don't know that. I have a great relationship with God. I have great relationship with uh, the evangelicals. And I go to church a lot, always, on Christmas, always. on <laughs> 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 a major occasion. And during the, during the Sundays, I'm a Sunday church. <laughs> <laughs> when we're not actually ask for forgiveness. We go in church and, and when I... Drink my little wine, which is about the only wine I drink, and have my little cracker. I guess that's a form of asking for forgiveness. And I do that as often as possible because I
2: feel cleansed. We were having fun when I said, I drink the wine. I drink, I, I eat the cracker. If I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God up that. Thank you. Well, I need it probably more than anybody in this room. You can stay if you want because you need the prayer more than I do. I just pray for Arnold if we can for those ratings i can understand the evangelicals to a certain extent. say well maybe he's not as nice as we are the good way they also want
4: to see the country be great why do you think those girls are drawn to you well i'm protestant i'm presbyterian
2: which means something maybe he's not as perfect on the bible and i did go to sunday school for many years i wouldn't say it says not We're We're bible's by a lot of people we don't call those bibles The whole there's no way
5: I would ever do anything to do. Make it a box. God is the ultimate. I mean, God created this. And, you know, here's the Pacific Ocean right behind us. So, uh, nobody, nobody, no thing, there's
0: nothing like God. So, that gives you a flavor. I couldn't find a video of it, but one of the most famous moments. Uh, around Trump and religion in the 2016 primary was, happened at a church in Iowa. And Trump is a Presbyterian, and so it was a little surprising in a Methodist church, which was one of the Methodist churches that didn't use a common cup, but passed around trays that had the cups the little cups for communion, and the wafers. Apparently when Trump was past the tray, he tried to put money in it, thinking it was a collection plate. So you get this sense that there's a distance between Trump and religion that certainly wasn't true really of any Republican candidate for president uh, in recent memory. So that's one side. And at the same time, you need to know, like, there is already a major nonprofit that exists, Evangelicals for Trump. Uh, regularly, Evangelical leaders are invited into the White House. Uh, regularly, there are big prayers for Donald Trump. 80 something percent of white Evangelicals voted for Trump, and his polling numbers are the strongest among white Evangelicals. So, Some of the narrative is true, but some of it is a little different. Now, I'm gonna focus more tonight than I would have Monday, um, or especially last Friday when I, you know, and earlier when I was starting to put together these notes on the two front runners for the Democratic ticket. What I find interesting is that both of them reflect what I would say are a little bit older of an understanding of religion in the Democratic Party than what we've seen come up. But we'll talk a little bit about that. I, I want to start with something Bernie Sanders said. So Bernie responded to some of the Trump rhetoric and, and a particular piece about Trump and religion um, that has come up in recent days. This is from a CNN town hall. And I'm not going to start right at the beginning because we'd be here all night. We're going to start about here.
5: Family suffering uh, it's in Poland is something
1: that has impacted my life, um, President Trump actually spoke about uh, faith today at a national prayer breakfast this morning. He said he quote, doesn't like people who
2: That he is attacking mid-marches and the justice. Savage ways, to destroy people's lives. So you yeah, know, that's that's. All. I, I think Mitt Romney showed uh, a great deal of courage. and I wish that there were other Republicans who had the same sense of decency uh, that he did. You know, and I, I think back to something I knew
4: fairly well. John McCain you was know, uh, a decent person. Again, somebody I disagree with all over the place. And to see Trump attack McCain when he was alive, and even when he was dead, because McCain stood up to him the United States. to here.
0: All right, I'm going to pause us there. So, that question that Bernie was initially asked before he got into the um, conversation about Trump was about his Jewish heritage. And he said a number of things, but really ended on this question of his family's experience of the Holocaust. That tends to be more, um, Bernie Sanders did push back against a, um, uh, there was an email leak that exposed that he might be an atheist, and he said he wasn't an atheist. But he tends to talk about Jewish heritage more than he talks about his own personal faith. And when he talks about faith, he talks about it in a sort of private way. He talks about the um, beliefs of Nancy Pelosi or Mitt Romney and how that influences the way, but it's, it's not a my faith asks me to. It's a it's a sort of separation of um, faith and politics. Like, I'm going to let Pete Buttigieg comment on that in just a second. The other place where besides just Trump being sort of a not the usual candidate for the Republicans in terms of religion and politics, there has been a ascendancy of religious voices on the left that has meant that candidates, even arguably the most secular of the candidates, which is Bernie Sanders, have had to interact with um, religious left activists. Uh, the other... Clip of Bernie Sanders, I want to play you is this short bit of an interview between the Reverend Dr. William Barber and Bernie Sanders. Who knows? Who's William Barber? Who's Reverend Dr. William Barber? The Poor People's Campaign. What brought him to fame? Moral Monday. Monday. So, William Barber um, helped to, he was a big part of, was sort of the prime organizer of a campaign in North Carolina after the very famous North Carolina gerrymandering that had really turned the North Carolina House really, 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 really Republican, Barber and a number of other leaders, including our now presiding bishop, who then was bishop of North Carolina, started descending on the state capitol on Mondays and protesting a number of different actions. And it really started to create a new political day in North Carolina. And Barber is I would say still attempting to make that a nationwide movement. He's led a number of actions, um, and Michael Curry continues to work with him on a number of them, but he's gotten enough of a political voice that a number of the candidates have had conversations with him. This was on Ash Wednesday, just last week. Um, Here is William Barber and Bernie Sanders talking. I understand that the the debates, they don't ask the question, but our challenge to every candidate as a a campaign, as a corporate campaign, is what is the onus on the candidate and the party to say, listen, if there are 43% of this country living in Boston and 250,000 people that die every year, every time I'm on the stump, I'm going to
5: leave. Us are uninsured or underinsured, why like schools all over this country
1: are providing inadequate education to low-income kids, and when we talk about urgency, what the scientists tell us there is no moderate approach to climate change,
2: that we must be extraordinarily bold if we want to make sure that the planet we leave our kids and grandchildren, I am 70 that future generations is a planet that
0: is habitable now. You get a little bit of a flavor of what did you notice in that? What did you notice between William Barber and Bernie Sanders? I find it interesting that Barber is taking such a sort of contentious relationship to Sanders. Even though, I mean, like, Sanders' record, you know, he's the most, he's the person who talks about poverty the most. The question that Barber asks him before this in this interview is, why, don't, why, this, why doesn't this get talked about more? And Sanders says, because the media never asks me about poor people. I talk about it, but you don't see it on TV. It's the media. And then Barber continues to push him. That I find a really interesting dynamic, um, that Barber is not content to sort of say, not content to sort of kowtow or take Bernie's side of something. Uh, There's a famous moment in the history of South Africa. Desmond Tutu, through apartheid, is working to get Nelson Mandela released from prison. The night Nelson Mandela comes out of Robben Island, he stays at the Archbishop's house in Cape Town. Like this first night of freedom, he stays with Desmond Tutu. When the party, the African National Congress is formed, when they're working toward the election, Nelson Mandela comes to Desmond Tutu and says, when are you joining the party? And Desmond Tutu said, I'm not. My job is to hold the party accountable because I am a follower of Jesus. And I find a little bit of that attitude in the way William Barber interacts with candidates, which is quite interesting. So, Pete Buttigieg maybe got the most press. For the intersection between religion and politics of any of the candidates uh, in the primary. And there's a lot to be said about that and the why. Um, I decided not to show any of the clips that I'm sure all of us have seen where Pete Buttigieg is going on about Mike Pence and, and back and forth on same-sex marriage and things. I figured that's already all within our consciousness. Instead, I wanted to show you this little bit from the climate, cha- climate crisis town hall that MSNBC did. Because I think it's emblematic of something that's been going on.
2: For the purpose of this discussion, the one that actually strikes
0: me... I'm going to jump ahead. The, the questioner essentially asks about how does your faith intersect with climate change? But he takes a minute to ask it, so I'm not going to lie. climate
2: is a moral issue, and this is about stewardship. It is about justice. Justice among people living on the earth right now some of whom are more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change than others, but also justice between generations, right? If it matters how the choices you make in your life help or hurt another human being, then I think it matters into the future, too, even if you don't see or share the same time with the people that you're helping or hurting. Uh, Look, my party has historically been a little bit allergic to talking about faith for what I actually consider to be a very good reason and that is that we have seen the consequences of someone's faith being imposed on somebody else. And so we need to make sure that we honor the idea of standing for people of every religion and no religion equally. But I also think there's there's a moment here where we should invite those who are motivated by religious moral considerations to know that those are some of the things that are at stake in what we're doing to this this planet. I remember uh, interacting with a... Uh, senior Republican elected official who will remain nameless during the one of the times that we were having a terrible flood in the South Bend, and I uh, was saying, look, we could really use some help, and I, I think we've reached the point where we know that this is the sort of thing that's going to increase, and she said, well, uh, you know, God is doing all kinds of things, you never know what's happening, and, and, and I said, yeah, okay, but but we have increased frequency and severity of, of weather events that are harming us just as we Said something else about God, and I just kept thinking, what greater sin than to blame God for something people are doing that is harming other people? This is a moral challenge that's on us to do something. I think that might resonate with some people. There's a small
0: group of people who still. I'm gonna pause that right there. I found that a really interesting interaction uh, because, on two fronts. On the one, Pete makes an argument that's very pragmatic. There's a group of voters that could be mobilized if we talk about faith. And then he also makes a theological argument. That isn't the strongest theological argument, but there's a theological argument there. But naming the allergy and and saying it's it's for a good reason that Democrats have had about talking about religion is an interesting thing to do. The other candidate that talks a lot or talked a lot about religion, though sometimes in less concrete ways than Buttigieg, was Cory Booker. Uh, And I wanted to play a little bit of Cory Booker. You'll see I'm leading toward at the end a clip that Jack Jenkins is giving an interview about. But I want you to get just a snippet of the Cory Booker language in case you missed it in the like two months he was running to be president. Uh, you announced your, your campaign launch and, it, and it, it's very hopeful, we talk a lot about love, love your country, love your fellow man, you said very specifically that you don't have any hate in your heart, that you've even said that I love Donald Trump well my mom told me she told me she told me to love your neighbor, no exception short, and never let someone pull you so low as you need so I'm not to let Donald Trump my soul. Uh, I believe that this election we will never be a revival civil rights in our country. We need a more courageous effort in And what's happening in our
2: politics, what's happening in our politics right now is undermining our ability to get big things done. We have
0: Some of the interesting analysis I've read about why Cory Booker flamed out was he leaned too hard on the first part of that argument and not hard enough into the second bit. Which is to say that if you watched him in the debates, he really just kept, he didn't answer questions. He just kept saying we all agree. Why do we need to have this debate? And he failed to differentiate himself. The policy ideas that Grow from the ideals never really got the airtime uh, that you would have hoped they would have gotten from his candidacy. I decided not to make Pete Buttigieg the spokesperson for religion and same-sex marriage because that would be easy and obvious and whatever. Um, and also because Liz Warren had the best quip in all of the campaign, bar none, about this. Uh, I'm going to show you this bit because I think it It shows you a little bit about um, Elizabeth Warren and how she uses religion.
3: Now, let's say you're on the campaign trail and you're you're (laughs) approached.
1: And a a supporter approaches you and says, Senator, I'm old fashioned, and my faith teaches me that marriage is between one man and one woman. What is your response?
5: Well, I'm going to assume it's a guy who said that. (laughs) And I want to say that you just married one woman.
2: issue in
5: particular about same-sex marriage? No, I don't think so. I actually don't remember it. I mean, it may have been the case. I don't, you know, I don't have notes from when I was a little kid. But, but I don't. And that's part of, I mean, to me, it's about what I learned in the church I grew up in. The first song I ever remember singing. all the children of the world. And to me... Can you sing it again? (laughs) You want to harmonize with me on that? But, But to me, that is the heart. That was the basis of the faith that I grew up in. And it truly is about the preciousness of each and every life. It's about the worth of every human beings, and that I saw this as a matter of faith and saw There were a lot of different people who do a lot of different things, uh, who look different from each other, who sound different from each other, who form different kind of families. And I, I know that back in Oklahoma in those days, there weren't many people who were out. But, but the way I grew up, it was just gradual. It was... Two ladies who lived together. And it was just a part of what we understood in the area that I grew up. And the hatefulness frankly always really shocked me, especially for people. Because I think the whole foundation is the worth of every single human being. And I get people may make decisions for themselves that are different than the decisions other people make. But by golly, those are decisions about you. They are not decisions that tell other people what they
0: can and cannot. So that gives you a, a snippet of how Elizabeth Warren would pivot on questions like that and bring in her faith journey, even when not explicitly asked about it. So, to the other front-runner. Um, and I decided to put in a one-minute ad from Joe Biden about faith, because I find it interesting that he talks about faith. He's got a one-minute ad about faith, and what he says and what he doesn't in this ad. This so what has got me through difficult times in my life. When I
2: lost my wife and daughter stage work may have no a matter of months. First, for me, <laughs> faith is all about hope and purpose and strength. And for me, my religion is just an enormous sense of solace. I go to Mass and I say the rosary. I find it to be incredibly comforting. Kierkegaard said, faith sees best in the dark. Think of all the people you know who are going through horrible things. One foot in front of the other. I'm marvel at people who absorb and hurt and just get back up. And I'm absolutely, thoroughly convinced and optimistic about the prospects of this country. No, I really mean it. There is nothing.
0: What do you notice about that ad? Shout it out. I, I would argue the exact opposite. It's it's entirely personal. Okay. It's entirely personal. It's it's very personal. It's my faith saw me through these incredibly traumatic events in my life. What else do you, you notice about that?
2: It transactional.
0: Say it's something about that, Kurt. This is
2: something that faith does for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Something that faith does for me. Anything else? A little bit of mention. I mean, like in the the Pope's in it, and he talks about going to mass and the and the rosary. But um, but there's not a there's not a sense of like belonging to a body of believers, right?
2: Relationship, like, yeah. As opposed to a
0: transaction. Anything else you notice, maybe from the visuals? I noticed two visuals: Catholic mass and black churches. Mm-hmm. And that gets me to my second piece on Joe Biden. And this is my bit of analysis. I said there's no endorsement tonight. Um, you'll see in a minute. I, I I won't tell you who my candidate is, but they never got in the race. Uh, but part of my analysis about what happened in South Carolina and then leading into Super Tuesday is this: uh, I'm a big uh, like reader of Saul Alinsky and the community organizing kind of model that he built. And Saul Alinsky has a few ideas about politics that as much of a Twitterverse as we live in and as much as social media plays a role, I think that yesterday and over the weekend in South Carolina, Saul Alinsky had a big night because Michael Bloomberg paid an ungodly sum of money, and that's a theological statement, (laughs) and did not get more than what was it, Four or five delegates from American Samoa. Uh, I mean, like he, he he ended up edging up Buttigieg, who'd already dropped out, but he didn't win a single contest for all those millions of dollars he spent, and he spent that on new media. Mike, Mike Bloomberg's outspent everybody but Trump on social media, and he spent it mailing me at least seven different things that basically invalidated any claim he had to being an environmental (laughs) candidate. (laughs) But what Joe Biden leaned into and what Saul Alinsky would argue I think is the strength of Biden is decades worth of relationship. There are folks in South Carolina who can point to specific black politicians and church leaders in South Carolina that delivered the South Carolina vote to Joe Biden. And I would argue it's the relationships that he has built over decades that brought him to where he is, particularly with the black church. And you can see that in the invitations that Biden gets. This was not Super recently, this was last fall, when Biden was really down in the polls, Biden was the only candidate who was invited to speak at the 50th anniversary of the um, 16th, 16th Street uh, Baptist Church in Birmingham, the bombing that happened there. The service to remember that 50th anniversary, Biden's the only candidate that gets invited to come talk. And this is what he says. I'm only going to play a short clip from his remarks. I need to jump back a second and look at my time mark there 31 seconds. This play because I do find it really interesting. I mean, there probably was no one in the debates that was criticized as much for the record on race as Joe Biden, and yet the relationships that are there are pretty solid. Part of what organizers across the country are saying outside of national level politics is that there has not been. A next generation of how we do politics. You know, even in St. Louis, I can tell you, there's not a sense that we have moved into a new phase of black community organizing life in our city. The institutions that have been mustering the black vote for generations are continue to be the institutions that are doing that. And until there's a new set of relationships. I don't see that changing. So the relationship, I mean, this is essentially, Biden is an old school politician, and it looks like, at least in the Democratic primary phase, politics is old school, is the short of it. But I don't want the fact that the field has essentially shrunk into Bernie Sanders, who does not speak very publicly about faith, even when he's in front of a religious audience, even you know that's that's the other thing between them that I find really remarkable is in front of a religious audience, Bernie Sanders doesn't go there. In front of a religious audience, Biden goes all the way, you know. Which that's an interesting contrast. But neither of them is illustrating a new way. This. There's a different way. There's more of a voice that's possible. And it's not always happening on the national stage. I want to show you a brief ad from Stacey Abrams' run to be the governor of Georgia. See if we can get it to pop up. Maybe it's not going to pop up. I can pull it up, I'll show it to you after the break. But it doesn't want to come up. Um, essentially, the whole act tells a personal story. She talks about her dad, who's an ordained Methodist minister, and how her dad found out that there was not prison ministry in the local prison. And so he went around to churches of all denominations. They, they essentially wrote a circuit and raised money so he could start a prison ministry and how that really shaped her sense of what was possible politically. And how it shaped her sense, she says in it, I'm running as a progressive because I believe Jesus was a progressive. And you just sort of, whoa. Um, And then she gets several um, faith leaders from Georgia that talk about their hope that Stacy will embody their values as governor of Georgia. It's really a remarkable, I mean, to come from a Democrat, it's a really remarkable ad. Um, let's see if we can get a little bit from Jack Jenkins if the internets will cooperate with us. Ah, they're not going to. Um, all right, I'm going to have you talk at your tables and maybe we can get this back. In the little interview with Jack Jenkins, he talks about, and I'm seeing full of things, we so I'll try one more time. Jack Jenkins does an analysis. Oh, wait, here we go. 28, 31. We'll finish with Stacey Abrams. She's more fun to finish with than Jack anyway. There you go.
1: And so stop me at something.
0: you a sample of that. Um, If if Jack Jenkins actually has a book coming out in April that he would be pitching if he was here, so I'll pitch it for him. It's called American Prophets. You can pre-order it. In it, he does interviews with William Barber with Tracy Blackman, our own Tracy Blackman from St. Louis, uh, and uh, everyone from um, religious, indigenous religious advocates in Hawaii that are working against um, the construction of Telescopes on the Volcano. He really does this sort of documentation of what's going on in the religious progressive circles. Uh, and Jack's a great writer, it'll be a great book. Um, but that's a whole like two hour um, town hall at George uh, Washington University with him and Michael Steele and a couple other commentators, that's so it's worth your time. I'm gonna flip you over to your tables and then we'll come back to Stacey Abrams. So, uh, three questions. I'm gonna give you 15 minutes, so you get five minutes of questions. Have you ever participated in a political action with your community of faith? Or with a friend or neighbor's community of faith? If so, tell the story. If not, have you been invited and chosen not to attend? Not just progressive political actions. Um, talk about those. So Jack Jenkins, who you just heard from, uh, he notes that Democrats have been talking faith for a long time, but that in this election cycle, candidates are appealing to people of faith as part of a progressive base. Do you agree? What changes do you note in how progressives are talking about faith? What progressive faith voices are you paying attention to this political season, if any. And then the last one. The term values voters is often used to describe (coughs) folks who determine their vote based on an issue like abortion, access, or same-gender marriage. What values are important to you as a voter? Is there any one issue that would determine your vote for or against the candidate? And in the interim, I figured out how to turn the volume up, so if it's too loud, I'll run and turn it down. But here's Stacey Abrams on faith. My dad
3: was also very committed to the
4: prison industry. And he discovered that at the local jail in Gulfport, there wasn't a place of worship. That was open to all faiths. My father's response was to build a church inside the jail. Uh, And so my started raising money. He began traveling in the most of Southern Mississippi, going from church to church. But they were all tied together because they shared my father's commitment to be ecumenical, creating space for everyone to practice their faith. And that meant a lot. To me. And one of the reasons I am running as a Democrat, one of the reasons I consider myself a progressive is because my reading of the Bible says that Jesus Christ was a progressive. That the faith that I worship, the faith I, I practice, that believes in active service and active engagement.
3: And so I was raised in a
4: family that didn't just say, go do. They taught us to do. And I stand here today as the nominee for governor because I don't know what else to do in response to what we see around us. We are a state that is in trouble because we see the good, but we ignore the bad. And worse, we ignore those in the shadows and those that are too often unseen and unheard. Georgia has to look more broadly at who we are as the state of And we have a clear understanding of what is before us, and we have a clear choice and who will make the decisions of what we do. And we have someone who sees in God's children their full capacity, someone who believes that rights and freedoms are privileges to be handed out based on how much money you have in your zip code. And we have a leader who is willing to invest in every Georgian, And to say that if you are within our borders, you are within our career.
2: Everybody says.
0: about Jesus being a progressive and she was almost governor of Georgia and if it hadn't been for voter suppression, she would have won. I find that remarkable. So she's my answer to the second question about uh, progressive faith voices that I'm paying attention to. Why didn't
5: she run for president? Why did Beto O'Rourke? You know, he lost too and he ran for president. She lost and was cheated out of that and she didn't run.
0: Yeah, well, and that's that I find interesting, right? Like Stacy Abrams chose not to run. Beto O'Rourke had this campaign that shot like a comet and burned out just as fast. You know, it was it was done. And I just wonder if she's better at reading politics than Beto was. Um, you know, I I do honestly wonder if the kind of organizing that Stacey Abrams was able to pull off in Georgia, I think it's going to take some time for that kind of movement to take hold in a number of states. And you're going to need a whole bunch more Stacey Abrams before you upset the politics as it is. So, and you know, we can all pray that God would send us more Stacey Abrams. (laughs) Right? But, But that's Part of the question I have for you. So, who are other religious voices that you're paying attention to? What other names came up? Wow. The
1: state the
3: <laughs>
1: so there's like Sarah Bessie, Jeff Chu in the Evolving Faith crowd from like the Rachel Evans progressive.
0: Yeah. Anybody else heard of um, Sarah Jesse Jeff Chu? Couple of folks? Yeah but it, it's thin. Um, one of the voices that I'm paying attention to, um, I, was, I was a proud Episcopalian at one mo- moment late summer last year. Um, there's a, a probably our most famous black theologian in the Episcopal Church right now. Uh, she's the first black woman to be the dean of an Episcopal seminary. That seminary is now merged with Union Theological Seminary in New York. Um, it's used to be Episcopal Divinity School. It was, up in, it was an independent institute in Boston. Now it's part of Union. It's a very famous seminary in New York. But her name's Kelly Brown Douglas. Go and watch some of her interviews. Uh, but Kelly Brown Douglas convinced the Bishop of Washington and the Dean of the National Cathedral after a huge amount of really racist rhetoric uh, came out of, of the president, both on Twitter and in interviews, it was back when he talked about Baltimore being like infested and things, and they pushed back, and and they pushed back theologically, and it was a moment. You know, there were all sorts of interviews on MSNBC and on CNN and on public radio talking about, you know, this is the church where, you know, at the inauguration, after the inauguration, several thousand people come up to pray over the president, and just a couple of years later, they were critiquing the president. And I was impressed with that. And Kelly Brown Douglas was the most articulate of the voices in the midst of that. Kelly Brown Douglas is the dean of a seminary, an Episcopal priest and a theologian at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And she's the canon theologian at the National Cathedral. Uh, Tracy Blackman is probably our most, um, well, Starsky too, Starsky Wilson. Uh, in St. Louis, those are not just St. Louis voices; those are national level voices. Um, Cory Bush, too. Cory Bush, uh, even AOC. Oh, you see what AOC did um, in a in a really empty hearing chamber? Uh, and I don't, I didn't actually. That. But she did a whole case for why is religious liberty cover for religious bigotry these days? And it's brilliant. Um, so there are voices out there that are claiming faith. And she got more retweeted for that than she usually gets. It's a saying something. Um, but there are voices out there that are claiming faith and talking about faith in new and different ways. I have one thing to put out. It's kind of off yeah. a little bit. Um, Dr. Willie um, Parker. Willie Parker. Um, I don't know resident-
5: Yeah. Um, that is um, in transit over a different in the South. And his story is absolutely awesome.
3: Yeah. Uh, and how
5: this uh, the, the moral decision he makes to uh, death of every abortion. Um, this, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful
0: life story. What's his name? Uh, Dr. Willie Parker. W-I-L-L-I. So what about that last question about well, let's do the first and the last one. Um, anybody been with their church? Uh, bonus points if it wasn't with Holy Communion. Uh, but um, been part of a um, political action. Anybody willing to say about it? Um, so
3: I have checkered history.
6: Yeah. Uh, with political action, I was raised um, fundamentalist evangelical. And my parents dragged me to anti-abortion marches and protests and uh, all kinds of uh, what I now consider evil. And uh, then, maybe in my late teens, early twenties, I was delivered from that in the language of my people, and um, and found a more progressive church. And um, they were very politically active, and so joined in many, many different uh, political actions sort of with them, but uh, the most well-attended one was the um, protest after um, the Mark Clark killing, mm-hmm. and uh, they were in force in that, and um, it was really powerful to be a part of that protest. Susan. So when I was growing up, I grew up in a church, um, very liberal church in the San Francisco area, Both sides of the issues. I said that wrong but you know what I mean. um, yeah. And it was about getting engagement. So there were lots of tables, and as long as you could have a table in reason, but and you had postcards um, and you
5: could write letters, so it was an, a way to get engagement.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So, what about that last question? What are your values? Are there are any of you single issue voters? Willing to identify as such? I
4: probably am.
0: Yeah? Abortion. Abortion. If somebody came out as pro wife, you would uh, not be able to vote for them?
3: Probably
0: not. Yeah. yeah. Others? It's okay to be honest about that. I mean like be drunk. Yeah. Or, uh... <laughs> well I like, all of them.
5: <laughs>
0: Well, yes and no, I mean like that. The other voice that I have found really interesting, um, because I would encourage you—I mean, for the Stacey Abrams out there as well—I think one of the things I find really compelling—it's it's some of what Jack comes around and says about Pete Buttigieg in the end, um, which is I pay a lot of attention to a preacher in Georgia named Andy Stanley. Anybody ever heard of Andy Stanley? Arguably, he has the largest single church in America now, but it's a multi-site. Um, and he's one. I, I I ran into him in D.C. at a, and Barack Obama invited him to come preach. Um, and that tells you something as well about how Barack Obama saw these things. Um, but he gave one of the most compelling sermons I'd ever heard. And so I started paying some attention to Andy Stanley. It was back in 2016. Andy Stanley preached a set of four sermons at his huge, super huge multi site megachurch in Georgia, where he said he had a four points. So there are four sermons. There's one point each sermon. He's very programmatic that way. Um, but it was very simple. What he said was the first point about how to be a Christian engaged in politics have a civil conversation with someone who disagrees with you. The second point, Learn something from them. Um, the third point was something like, never disengage. And the fourth point was, vote your values. And then he explicitly made a values-based case for why you would vote for Trump or for Hillary Clinton. Which is very major, Pastor of Georgia, right? But but I found those first two points, well, I'll happened until the end where I was like, ah, you're just selling to the whole crowd. But the first three points I found really compelling, because the idea that we build ourselves into these silos and we stop listening is really big. Those of you who are members of Holy Communion may not know this, but we have a handful of Republicans at Holy Communion.
5: Yeah, really?
0: And I hear from them, semi-frequently, Um, But when we had Denise Lieberman and we showed Rig, a number of folks were really impressed because caring about citizenship and about the right to vote is not a partisan issue. And a lot of what these folks are talking about shouldn't be partisan issues. We've allowed ourselves to be divided in ways that we shouldn't be allowing ourselves to be divided. And in some ways, I I mean, William Barber I also pay a lot of attention to. And that attitude he took, even to the candidate, that probably, if you were to hand William Barber's agenda to a candidate and say, (coughs) make a politics with this, it's probably Bernie Sanders. And he's still taking a, I need you to answer the question. How are you going to make this center to your campaign? And I find that to be a really compelling thing. Like, don't be more identified with party than you are with your faith, with your values. Um, because when that happens, you stop being able to talk to anybody else. And you stop being able to persuade anybody else. Um, so I find that really compelling. That's me. Questions, thoughts, things you want to share before we're done? Michael. I, I would land on climate change if I, were to say yeah. that I was
2: a single issue. And I think it's a perfect. How, how did this ever become a partisan issue, you know? It has nothing to do with conservative or liberal, So you know, except what people have related
0: to
3: it.
0: One of my die-hard Republicans at my old um, church was a guy named Russell Train, uh, the Honorable Russell Train. He was the second secretary of the EPA. Uh, he was a fascinating guy. When he died, his, his a bunch of his personal affects went to the Smithsonian, including uh, a whole bunch of hunting trophies of um, Teddy Roosevelt's and David Livingston's gun. So, fascinating dude. But he had had the honor of being fired by Nixon. He was appointed by Nixon and fired by Nixon as Secretary of the EPA because... He had said that they needed the gas standards to be higher than Nixon was willing to let them be, and Nixon fired him over it. But Russell Train always argued that conservation and conservative came from the same root for a reason. And how we allowed this to be a very, I, I will also say, Debbie and I were talking about over here, the way that climate and green politics have shaped, it's made it a particularly difficult it, I think it's really hard to get grassroots activists involved in because it all happens at the level of international agreements and geopolitical and businesses and it's very hard to figure out how uh, the most successful campaigns that I have seen on that, um, one of which I was just sort of in a congregation that helped it happen the other that I was a little bit a part of. Um, in California in the early 2000s there was a group called Interfaith Power and Light that figured out that if they got all the congregations they could together in California, they could get enough of a block that they could force the utility company that has a monopoly um, to do something about buying more solar and wind. And that is why in Missouri you can buy your way in, like you can pay a little bit more each month and get your like green power thing Interfaith Power and Light created that sort of marketplace where power companies create, there was an incentive to create more solar and wind. Um, That was successful because you could put a bunch of organized money together. The other one in D.C., um, D.C., like St. Louis, had a settlement with the EPA over the sewer system. Uh, The sewer system in D.C., we always do things by administrations, so the sewer system from the D.C., anybody know what presidential administration it was built during? Lincoln. Lincoln. So in the Lincoln administration, so just like here, every time it rained, there was a whole bunch of sewage uh, that ended up in the Potomac. Here, it just, that, that is the river to pair. Um, <laughs> but we have a $5 billion settlement with the EPA. Your sewer bills are about to skyrocket as they dig new tunnels and figure out where the sewer stuff is going to be. It's, it's all going to be passed back down to sewer consumers. In D.C., a group of congregations got together and figured out Um, We got liberal white uh, Jews and white Episcopalians and Presbyterians from Georgetown and Mm -hmm. Upper Northwest D.C. And um, impoverished black congregations from Anacostia. And we got them talking about climate and things that they were interested in. Mm -hmm. And the Northwestern folks were all interested in climate. And we tried to talk climate justice stuff and nobody in Anacostia was buying it. They wanted to talk about jobs and they wanted to talk about what happens if somebody gets out of prison and they can't get a job. And they figured out, the organizers. I I was just... I was actually doing stuff with homeless folks in the same organization, sort of coming to their rallies. That was about all I was doing. They figured out how to create a campaign that was about green jobs. So they took about a third, they fought the sewer company and the city, and they won, and they changed the consent decree so that instead of digging a big tunnel under Georgetown, that none of the rich people that had jack houses there wanted anyway. They created a job training program, and um, they had a almost a billion dollars to spend 15 years on employing hundreds of people, at $15 an hour or better, to create green infrastructure to change water patterns, you know, rain gardens and stuff. But they were able to create as much water containment as they would have been able to divert in a different pipe. And you hired returning citizens, and you gave them jobs for years, and you made them employable. And you were keeping rainwater in the water table. So you had a green, and you know, I think it's going to take that kind of creativity yeah. to really build coalitions. And it's going to be on the ground affect people day to day to really get climate to work on that kind of organization. Other questions? Yeah. Debbie? Well,
5: it, there is a little
4: called Citizens Climate Lobby that would love to partner with churches. Yeah. I'll just throw that out there. Yep. <laughs> Susan. Can you
1: talk a little bit about
0: at. Yeah, so, that
6: whole and how religion backfired on
0: him. Yeah, backfired is an interesting way. Um, so the 2008 campaign after Obama had won the primary, there was a set of sermon videos and this is early for churches to be posting things online. Mm-hmm. But, um, I'm going I'm to forget Jeremiah Wright. The pastor of the, I mean, Barack Obama, um, a lot of his narrative, and you can see it, I mean, Biden, a lot of Biden people are Obama people. Biden was his VP. Barack Obama comes from a, um, a style of political organizing uh, that was created by a, uh, a political thinker called Marshall Gans at Harvard. Um, it's this, this discussion of what's called public narrative. And so, the, pushing the personal journey is a big piece of the way that Barack Obama told the story. And his personal journey around religion happened while he was a community organizer in Chicago, and he went to a big black UCC church. It's one of the biggest UCC churches in the country. It's a black church. um, And a guy named Jeremiah Wright was a pastor. And supposedly Obama was never there for the sermons, but Jeremiah Wright preached a sermon where he had a refrain that was, God damn America. And it was really, I mean, essentially what Kamala Harris was saying when she said, um, you know, like, you either have the religion of Jesus or the religion of the slave master. But it it was a rhetorical device, but it got Obama in really deep water. Um, And it meant that he, he disavowed his connection to that church and then never joined another church. He worshiped with us at St. John's more than anywhere. Well, actually that's not true. Publicly with us, most of the weekends, he and the family went up to Camp David and worshiped at the chapel at Camp David. He went to church most Sundays, but it was up at Camp David because the press weren't allowed there. But it did mean that any time he went to church, the sermon was reported out. Um, And Rush Limbaugh one time got my bosses, Went off on something my boss said, and we were getting death threats. It was really awful. Um, but that that, yeah, that tension
3: around
0: well, yeah. But it it, it is it, the Barack Obama mm-hmm. moment made it this in a way that like nobody had ever reported. Mm-hmm. Now, what mm-hmm. I found interesting, one of the clips I didn't show from the same church after my old boss had left, a guy named Bruce McPherson was the interim rector. And that same day that, that like precipitated um, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas and the National Cathedrals thing, it, it was this day where he went on a tirade, but it was also the day that he was going off on John McCain, who had just died. Um, and he said some, really, it was like one of his biggest trigger rants ever. But they noticed that it, for about an hour and a half he stopped, and they realized he had gone to church, because it was a Sunday, at St. John's. And so CNN played the clips from the sermon because the audio was posted online at St. John. And Bruce McPherson was preaching a sermon that was essentially against hate speech. And a talk- he talked about how like, Twitter has become this terrible place. And, and so Trump w- like, had this terrible tirade, went to church, and then went off on John McCain. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is just shocking. But that's the nice. only time I've ever seen something that Trump attended in a sermon reported on. Um, Barack Obama every time. Like, you you got to quote in the Washington Post if you preached in front of him. So, it was an interesting day. Other questions around religion politics? Don't give up. There is a new day coming on this stuff. There are more leaders in the next generation that are talking about faith and politics in this way. And I, I, some of them, you know, I really hope the most compelling politicians that we've seen in this cycle—they're young and they're not done. Um, I really admire what Stacey Abrams is doing. She decided that Democratic foray was not where she was going to play. She created a whole nonprofit that's working on pushing back on voter suppression all over the country. Um, I find that really compelling. You know, she may end yet end up a VP. We'll see. Um, but uh, but that's the kind of stuff that I think is possible. Um, we could be talking about faith in a very different way in this country. And it won't be just the purview of one uh, party. And being a values voter won't be shortchanged for saying, I'm a very conservative Republican. I'm going to let that be the last word. Um, We hope to see you next month uh, with the Bishop Alack. Uh, Please be generous as you tip your bartenders. And let's say thank you to Schlafly. We hope to see you next month.